Christ in me. Amen. Amen. Please uh, be seated. If you're an elementary-aged person, you can head out these doors right here and go to your class. Go down there to the right. Bonnie, would you be so kind as to come up here real quick? So one of the things about being a, a smaller community is that when somebody has to leave, we, uh, we notice, and that's not a threat, it's that we, uh, we, we know that we miss you. And so we, we, when our people leave, we feel it very deeply. And so Bonnie has been with us for several years and has been super engaged in our community, super engaged in our women's Bible study. She's been engaged in ministries outside of our church, and, and so, but she is having to move to the Atlanta area, and she's doing so basically this week. So we, uh, we just wanted to bring her up here and just lay hands on her and just pray blessing over her and give you an opportunity to, to tell her that you love her and tell her that you're going to miss her. And many of you who know her know that she's already leaving, but we just like to pray for you. And Bonnie, we just want to thank you for digging into our community. Your heart for the Lord is so precious. Your heart for the marginalized and people who have been thrown away is just such a wonderful example of God's love for us. We just want to thank you for being a part of our body and we are just going to pray some blessings over you, and we know that if we don't ever see you again, that we get a long time in eternity to, uh, to spend with you. So let me just pray for you, and then uh, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you go. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for, for Bonnie and for her life, for the life you've given her, for her sweet and tender personality, for her just her great love for you. And we just lay hands on her, Lord, to let her know that we love her deeply and that we want to impart blessing on her as she goes. And we just pray that you would go before her, that her path in moving would be easy, that you would just level the path, that she would walk in a broad place, and that she would um, find ministry there and a church that preaches your word and a community of people who love you quickly when she arrives. We pray that you would send out your servants to bring her in, that she would be listening to your Holy Spirit as you lead her on into this next phase of life for her. And that most of all, Lord Jesus, that she would continue to enjoy your presence with her and to walk in the newness of life you have given her. And so we, we will miss our dear sister, but we send her uh, on the way knowing that you are with her on the journey. And we ask that you would bless her and keep her and cause your face to shine upon her and give her peace. That you would simply, uh, that your presence would be so very much known to her that she would feel your presence with her, that she would feel your power and that your, your very life is coursing through her veins as she goes through this process. We will miss her, but we know that this is not goodbye. It's only hasta luego, and we will see her in glory, where we will never have to say goodbye again. But until then, we love her, and we will miss her, and we're so grateful that you let us share a little bit of her journey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Bonnie. We love you. Okay. So. How's everybody doing? Happy Fourth of July! Um, our uh, my my Fourth of July sermon will be shorter than Treb's Father's Day sermon, so uh, which was also short. He had four really good points, which is still sticking with me. Um, other than that, uh, we live historically in a country that has more freedom than any other place ever has ever, and so please use it well and uh, use it for the glory of the Lord and to love other people and to further the kingdom. And uh, if you do that, all is well. Also, uh, go blow something up because it's really fun. Uh, but do so within the boundaries of the law. So anyway, um, so we're going to continue on in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be in verse 11 through 22. We'll be jumping around a little bit to another couple of verses because uh, like last week, this stuff is a bit of a deep dive. We're going to hit some topics that are um, 
very, very important, but that a lot of folks have never dug into. And so I, I hope it's enjoyable. And, and the, the point of all this, remember in the context that the author is writing this book to the Hebrews and they have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus. They have been saved. And yet they are at, at risk of kind of drifting away from, from the center, drifting away from, from Jesus. And so he is pictured as this anchor, that he is the anchor of our hope. And this, this whole sermon series is titled Hope and Glory because Jesus is the only hope that we have. And yet he is the fullness of the glory of God. And we can sink our hopes into him. And as the world and life and circumstances tug on us and threaten to blow us away from him as our center, that we can be called back to that. And so there's this really long process where he's been discussing who this guy Melchizedek is and that Jesus is in this priesthood of Melchizedek. We talked about who Melchizedek was last week. And we're going to look at how Jesus is, uh, why it matters that he is a priest according to him and what that means for the Old Covenant. So when I say the Old Covenant, I'm talking about the Mosaic Covenant, like the Old Testament. And it is this covenant that was given to the Israelites. They were brought out of Egypt and then they came uh, into uh, the desert as redeemed people. And God said, this is my, my law. This is how I want you to relate to me. And they said, we'll do it. And it formed this covenant. Now, that covenant came to an end in Jesus. He fulfilled that covenant, which is a much broader term that we're going to touch on today. But a lot of the New Testament is written explaining that. So to the Jews, these Hebrews, they had believed on Jesus, and yet they were being drawn back to Judaism, drawn back to the law and to the Levitical priesthood. And, and that's because that's how they related to God. So Christ came and cataclysmically shattered their whole way of doing things, which he is really good at doing. So if you've never had Jesus break something that you thought you were doing right, um, just, just keep walking with him and I promise you he will break something that needs to be broken and will make it new. But in that line, we're going to jump into this uh, passage here in 11, <clears throat> talking about Jesus. So he says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. I've got to do a full stop here. I forgot to pray. And so I, uh, when I preach and I forget to pray, the Lord just reminds me, um, you need me, and I get really scared. So we're going uh, to pray real quick, and then uh, we're going to jump back in. I'm going to pick up where I left off. So, um, Lord, I just thank you that you love us and that... I know, Lord, I prayed for Bonnie, and I thought I'd pray, but we hadn't asked you to lead us through this. And so I just want to confess, Lord, that I, I just need you, and we all need you to explain your word to us. These things are hard. This is not stuff that you just gloss over. It's very deep stuff that we have to think about, and we need your Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to us and lead us in the way of righteousness. So we ask you to do that. I ask you to help us understand why it matters that you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why does that matter? It's very important to you, and that means it needs to be very important to us. So would you help us to see the truth in this and help us to see how it applies to our life? It's so easy to just gloss over these passages of Scripture and then jump to the verses that we understand. But there's such great value in this, Lord. So please help us. Help us dig down. Help us understand. We need your help, Lord Jesus. Help us understand the word that you wrote to teach us. I pray that you would just work this time for our good and for your glory. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We entrust this time to you. We're grateful to your great love for your great love for us and just look forward to what you have to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, now I feel better. All right, I don't know how many verses I got in there. Was I in? Change, 
I'll just start over. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, right? Levites, uh, basis on the law, why was there still a need for another priest to come in, in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? Okay, I'm just going to stop there and we're going to walk through this. So, the Levitical priesthood was, it was a group of Levites. The, the uh, Israelites were broken up into tribes and different tribes did different things. But the Levites, the, the sons of Levi, they were the sons in the, the family line of Levi. They were tasked with being the priests. So their job was to run everything. Like they ran the temple. The high priest came from the tribe of Levi. Um, they, they chopped the wood. They did the sacrifices. They took the tithes. They took the offerings. They were the intermediaries between the people and God. So... He's asking this question, if perfection could have come through that priesthood, why does there need to be someone in the order of Melchizedek? So verse 12, he says, for when there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. Because the law and the priesthood were absolutely uh, woven together. You could not have one without the other. Without the priesthood, the law could not function. Without the law, the priesthood had no meaning. So he says, if there's going to be a change of priesthood, we're also going to have to change the law. In verse 13, he says, He of whom these things are said, this is Jesus, are uh, said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So in uh, the kingly line came from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. So he can't serve as a Levitical priest because Jesus is not a Levite. So he's saying, we know that Jesus did not come from the Levites because we know he's from the tribe of Judah. So something has to be different about him. In verse 15 it says, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the author is saying, listen, it's not based on who Jesus' ancestors were that makes him a priest. It's based on the fact that he has the power of an indestructible life. And because of the power of an indestructible life, it's declared that he'll be a priest forever. For how long? Forever. How? In the order of Melchizedek. So let's keep reading and then we'll explain it. The former regulation, which is the, the law, is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said of him, the Lord has sworn, this is from uh, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Okay, so back up to chapter, verse 11, excuse me. When it says perfection, if perfection could have come, that word really means completion or fulfillment. Meaning the, the whole point was that people are sinful and they need a redeemer. How can, right, how can we become righteous like God is righteous? And if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, if me going up to a person saying, I have sins, I need to kill this goat or this ox or this dove, and that's going to make me perfect, that's going to make me complete in the eyes of God. If that could have been attained, fulfillment or completion, then there would be no need for another priesthood but another priesthood came so it says when there's this change there also has to change the law and this is all going to roll into basically that jesus's priesthood doesn't come from the same place that the levitical priesthood comes from theirs comes from the fact that they're levites that's it so when you look up into uh, verse 20 and it says others became priests without any oath 
meaning all the Levites that became priests, God never said directly, all of you will be priests and I'm going to swear by my name. He just says, you're going to, the, the priesthood will come from the tribe of the Levites. And so they just did it as people were, be, died and more priests were born. But Jesus became a priest with this oath, which we'll get to in just a second. So this idea that Jesus is priesthood, he can't be a Levite. So he has to become a priest by some other metric or through some other mechanism or for some other reason. And the two reasons that he gives are first in verse 16, that it is by the power of an indestructible life. So we're going to dig into that just a little bit. So Jesus' priesthood is based on power and it's based on an oath. So firstly, the power. Why is it important that Jesus' priesthood is based on the power of an indestructible life? He'll explain that a little bit later in, uh, in chapter 8, the fact that the priests kept coming and dying. And so you had to just, there was a whole bunch of priests. Jesus' life, though, is very different. And so when I looked up the word for indestructible, almost all the Bible versions say the same word, the power of an indestructible life, which is pretty rare for them to have that same translation. Like the King James says the power of an endless life. And so that sent me on a word hunt. And I started looking at what does this word for indestructible mean? So it, it literally translates um, indissoluble. I was like, what does indissoluble mean? I mean, it can't be dissolved. And so it sent me on a rabbit trail. And indissoluble means this, incapable, something that is indissoluble, incapable of being destroyed, incapable of being dissolved, which is indissoluble, incapable of decomposing, being undone, being annulled, being broken apart. Positively, it means it is endless and that it exists forever. Because something that is indestructible has being that is never destroyed and so continues to exist forever. So this idea of something that is indissoluble, I was like, well, what is, how am I trying to understand that word that Jesus's life can't be taken apart, that it can't be broken down? It said it couldn't be decomposed. And there's this Psalm in Psalm 16 that says your body will not undergo decomposition. I'm like, okay, how, how does this work? Yeah. And I started thinking about what is the opposite of dissoluble would be soluble, right? So that made me think of high school chemistry or some chemistry I took in college. And I thought, okay, something that's soluble, like salt is soluble in water, right? Or you can stir up sugar and it dissolves in water. And does anybody remember this phrase for how you know if something is soluble in something else? Like dissolves like. Remember that phrase from, from chemistry? So like things dissolve other like things. And so that's when you can know if you can figure out what something is, is what will dissolve it. And so I'm thinking, okay, so Jesus can't get dissolved? What does that mean? And my brain is not working very well this week. And so I'm thinking, okay, how does this work? And then this like dissolve like idea comes up. And I'm thinking, one of the reasons that Jesus' life is indestructible is because nothing else like him. He is unique. He is the son of the living God. He is fully man and fully God. There is nothing like Jesus, period. There's no human like Jesus, there's no creature. He's not created. He is the creator. He is both the creator and the sustainer of all things. And as we look at in the first chapter of Hebrews, he is the exact representation of the, of the invisible God to us. He is God. And yet he is fully man and he is fully God. There is no one like Jesus. And so because there is no one like Jesus, no one can destroy him. Who is it that could come up to Jesus and say, you're done, you're finished? Who? Who could destroy him? If the devil could destroy him, I guarantee you he would have. Now, Jesus, is, as, a, as a human, could die, and he did. 
He absolutely died. But Jesus' life did not end on the cross. You understand? We have to understand that his life did not stop. We're going to play into why this is important in a little bit here, but the reality is that Jesus' life is indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. And because it cannot be destroyed, it can never end. Matter of fact, it never began, and it will never end. So Jesus comes up, and it's like if you're comparing the Levitical priesthood, which was a bunch of dudes, many of whom were awful, doing this priestly work, they are, they're the ones who are uh, maintaining the law between the relationship between humans and man, uh, excuse me, humans and God. That's their job. They're the intercessor between those two groups. Jesus comes up, and he's like, okay, we're going to compare our priesthoods. This priesthood is made up of a bunch of dudes. This one is me. I'm better. Remember, one of the themes of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood in part because the singular priest of, the, of, of Melchizedek has a life that can never be destroyed. Okay, hold on with me, okay? So in verse 17, it says, For it, or for this reason, it's declared you are a priest for how long? Forever. Why? Because your life can't be destroyed. So, there's kind of this parenthetical thing in 18 and 19. And I say parenthetical, some of your versions may even have parentheses there. But he's talking about these two reasons that Jesus' priesthood is based on this power and this oath. And then he has this, this statement, the former regulation, meaning the law, has been set aside. So that word set aside, um, depending on what your version said, it really means to be uh, disannulled, which means, like if you think about a, a marriage that gets annulled, it's not like the marriage never happened. It's just that the, the marriage no longer has any validity, right? So, but something that is disannulled is something that is utterly annulled. It is made void. It is made invalid. So it says the former regulation, meaning the law of Moses, has been invalidated. It's been voided. It's like if you walk up to uh, Peter at the pearly gates. I don't worry about the idea of Peter at the pearly gates. I don't think there's pearly gates. I guess there are gates, whatever. But anyway, Peter's not over there keeping people in and out. But anyway, all that to say, when you go to be with Jesus and you come before his judgment and he says, why do you get to live forever? Why do you get to have life? Why do you, why, tell me, explain yourself to me. And if you go up and you say, I've got the ticket, I kept the law. What's Jesus going to say about that ticket? It's voided. It's invalid. It's like if you get a ticket for an air flight, an air, an air flight? What am I talking about? Uh, an airplane, a flight on an airplane. <laughs> Aeroplanes, they fly in the air. Anyway, if you have a ticket for that and the airline voids it, it's useless, right? You can't use it to get on the plane because you walk up to the gate and you give them the ticket and they go, well, the, the ticket's voided or it's expired. It can't, it's useless. It's just paper. The law of Moses is now, that's why it says, because it was weak and useless. It is now useless for us to relate to a holy God. For it says in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. So how is it that that happened? So let's jump back to Romans real quick. Romans chapter 8, which is a wonderful chapter about living life through the Spirit. But the contrast of that would be living life in the law. So Romans and Galatians and 2 Corinthians and, and lots of chapters in the New Testament are explaining why. But why is it that the law was weak and useless? Because the law was perfect, right? Like if you've read Psalm 119, that was written about the law. The law is beautiful. 
But Romans will explain like it does lots of things. Uh, this is Romans 8.3. It says, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So the law was weak. Why? It was dependent upon humans carrying it out. Human priests had to do their job right so that human people could make sacrifices to atone for their sins before God. The law of Moses was dependent and weakened by sinful nature. And so God did something else by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be the sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This is why Galatians 5.16 says that where, there, where, the Spirit, where the fruit of the Spirit is, there is no law. Because where someone is filled with the Spirit and is demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, the law of Moses can say nothing against that person. So speaking of Galatians, let's jump to Galatians 3 to kind of further explain this. About why the law was weak and what it couldn't do. Oh, Galatians 3 is so good. Okay, um, it's just hard not to just read the whole book. Anyway, um, but we're not. We're just going to read starting in verse 21. If you ever get bored, just read Galatians. It's just so good. Or if you're not bored, you should also read it. Just read it. It's just wonderful. But anyway, verse 21. He is discussing this, this reason that uh, why the law is no longer able to do what, what people want it to do. And so he's asking this question really in verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions un until the seed, meaning Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. So the law was put into effect basically to, to help people relate to God until the Messiah would come. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Meaning, does the law go against God's promise of redemption to Abraham? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the law couldn't impart life because we look back at Romans, it was unable to because it was dependent upon humans. And been around humans very long, we're not super reliable. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So the problem with the law is that sinful people have to uphold it. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, which we talked about in Galatians 2.20, right? This faith in the Son of God. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. In verse 24, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law points us to Jesus. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And then... Uh, um, We'll go and, and goes on to explain that we're now sons of God and, and, and Galatians 4 explains even more what that looks like. So why was it that the law was weak and useless? One, like Romans said, because it was based on human nature. And two, because it was never intended to be the means by which we are reconciled to God. That was always intended to be Jesus. It's not like God did the law and was like, oh, this is not working. I've got to figure something else better. That's not, no. He always had the plan of redemption set from before the foundations of the world. He was going to choose Abraham and, and pick this people and then there's going to be this law for this time. And then that whole law was going to point to the Messiah. So you would have an entire group of people who would be able to point to Jesus and say, oh my gosh, this is the guy we've been waiting for. And then Jesus happens. 
But what happened is that you have all these Jews who are under the law and then have believed in Jesus and then want to return to the law to get what the law cannot give them. And so we have the book of Hebrews explaining why Jesus is a priest in this other order of Melchizedek. But look at the end of verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, and what? A better hope is introduced. If you're going to set aside the Mosaic law, something else has to be introduced. And he's laying the groundwork for the reality of the new covenant, which he's going to explain later in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 and in chapter 10. So he is explaining all of why the new covenant is better than the old Mosaic covenant. But there is now a better hope that is introduced. And what does that better hope enable us to do? Draw near to God. So that if you're going to draw near to God, can you do it through the Mosaic law? No. Can't do that anymore. You can try. And lots of Jews still are. You can't draw near to God through the law. You can only draw near to God through Jesus. So then he comes back, and the fact that Jesus had this power of an indestructible life, and he comes back in, in verse 20, and he says, And this was not without an oath, this priesthood. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, so I'm just going to skip. You don't have to go with me because that's quoting Psalm 110. But I like to actually turn back because I think it's fun to actually read it in there. So Psalm 110 is this incredible thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And Jesus used it to like super totally stump the Pharisees. After he lays down Psalm 110 to them, they stop asking him questions. Which is amazing because they were uber grumpy. So Psalm 110. We won't read the whole thing, just the first couple verses here. So... David says this in Psalm 110, the Lord, capital L-O-D, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, says to my Lord, well, who is David's Lord? That's the question, right, that Jesus asks them. So Yahweh says to my Lord, someone who David as king is calling his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So for us, reading back into this, we're seeing, and this is what Hebrews is explaining, that God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and will rule in the midst of your enemies. The troops will be willing in your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. And then in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And what did the Lord swear? He's swearing to the Messiah, saying this, You are a priest forever. So God the Father is swearing to God the Son, saying, I declare your priesthood forever, and it's a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And that is what Hebrews, as a book, is trying to explain. How Jesus is this new priest, and it's a totally separate thing from the law of Moses. So you've got to remember that for the Hebrew of this time, this is like mind-shatteringly impossible. For them, there is no concept of relating to God except through the ordinances of the law. They have no way of even comprehending that. So when Jesus comes up and he's like, I fulfill the law, they're like, well, what do we do now? And Jesus is like, come to me. And they're like, we don't come to you. We come to a priest. We come to the high priest. And Jesus is like, hey, that curtain, we're going to rip that thing in half. And I'm going to break open the Holy of Holies so that the access to my presence and my holiness is now available to everyone. It's earth-shattering for the Jew. I don't think we have any concept as 20, are we in the 21st, 20, whatever century we're in, as modern-day Western believers, 
how earth-shattering this is for them. I don't really have a way of getting into that mindset to understand how crazy this would sound and how difficult that shift would be. Hence the book of Hebrews written to explain this to these people. But it's not just that he set this weak thing aside. Remember, God never does that. God never just lays aside something and then just leaves us there in limbo. He lays it aside and then he gives us a better hope. And this priesthood, it comes with this oath in verse 21. But he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. Verse 22, because of this oath, because of God's sworn word, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So what is the guarantee that the new covenant, that God will stand by his word? Jesus. God's new covenant is this. You believe on, the, on my son and you are saved. That he came and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. And that if you trust in him, you will have eternal life. That's the new covenant. It's not you've got to do all these other things. Is that you have to, by faith, receive grace. And the fact that Jesus is now this guarantee of this better covenant means that no one can come up and one-up Jesus. Say, I have got a better deal in town. Nor can anyone come up and, and um, accuse Jesus of not holding to the deal. You guys remember in the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the movie? Um, I don't remember if it happens in the book, but in the movie... Um, Edmund is there and the white witch comes up and like lays her claim on Edmund and says he's a traitor. And you know what happens to traitors? I get him. And her and Aslan go into the tent and they have this discussion where they talk about the deep magic and all these things. And, and Aslan says she agrees to allow Aslan to take Edmund's place, right? And then, of course, Aslan goes and he gets slayed on the, on the stone, stone table and then he raises from the dead and all these things. But in the movie, when they come out, the white witch is, is, comes out and she's standing on her little, uh, her cool, crazy little thing pulled by polar bears or whatever. And she's standing there and she walks out and, and, and Aslan says, she's agreed to make the swap. I'll take Edmund's place. And then she kind of stands there and she goes, well, how do we know that you're going to stand by your word? Remember what he does? He just roars at her. And then she sits down and then she goes away. He doesn't even say, I'm not, he, all he does is roar. Why? Because Aslan, like, like Jesus, right, he has the power of an indestructible life. So if you're going to say that Jesus won't hold up to his covenant, don't do that. Because the Lord has sworn an oath. He doesn't swear a lot of oaths. But God has sworn by his own name, he will be a priest forever along, according to the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? We're going to get into this next week. But it's going to mean that he can intercede for us without end. And it's going to mean that we can't walk up to God and say, I don't, I don't know that I trust that you're going to hold up your end of the deal. You can believe that, but you're wrong. Because God says he'll do it. And when God says he'll do it, that means it's done. So what do we do with all of this? Um, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. So we have these two things, a better hope and a better covenant. We have this indestructible life. Well, first off, we have a, this better hope. So I want you to imagine that you are uh, a Jew back before Jesus. Where was their hope, really? Well, it was in the same place that David's hope was in. It was in the loving kindness of the Lord. They couldn't keep the law any better than you and I could. They knew they couldn't do it. 
They broke it. David himself, a man after God's own heart, broke every single commandment. All of them. Well, all of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if he broke every law in the law, but he probably tried. I don't know. He, he, wasn't, he was a sinner like you and me. David. He knew that it wasn't based on his ability to keep the law. His only hope was in the character of God. That was it. That's what he cries out for in Psalm 51, right? When he's been confronted with this sin with Bathsheba, he just cries out to the mercy of the Lord. But we now have this better hope. Why? Because we now know, we know personally the high priest. We know that Jesus is now this guarantor of this covenant. All of our hopes can now hang on Jesus, that we can anchor our hope in the one person who can never, ever disappoint me, and that is Jesus. Jesus will never disappoint us. Well, let me rephrase that. When I have expectations of Jesus that he has not promised me, he will disappoint me. If I believe that Jesus has promised me a Lamborghini, he has not promised me a Lamborghini. If I believe that Jesus has promised me a life free of difficulty, he's actually promised me the opposite. If I believe that Jesus has promised me that this thing will happen or that thing will happen because I think it should happen, he hasn't promised you that. He has promised us, though, abundant life. He's promised us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He's promised us those things. In James um, chapter 4, verse 7, he says this wonderful thing. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will free, flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Jesus has promised us that. That if I submit to him and resist the devil, he will flee from me, and that I can draw near to God, and he will draw near to me. We just read it a little bit, that if you abide in me, I will abide in you. That is this cry of the book of Hebrews. It's draw near to God. He's given us access, so draw near to him already. Why? Because we have a better hope. So what are you doing with it? Like if the 4th of July, I guess this is my 4th of July tie-in. If you have anything, you have a freedom that Christ has given you. What are you doing with it? What do you do with the fact that you now are the owner of a better hope? You can sink your hope in a Jesus who has an indestructible life. What are you doing with the fact that you're now under a new covenant? What are you doing with the life that he's given you? Do you draw near to God? Do you sit there and pull back from God and then blame him for not drawing near to you? Or do you draw near to him in all of your wavering a whimpering, pathetic. That's all I bring to the Lord, by the way. When I bring the Lord, I do not bring like, Lord, I bring you the majesty of myself. I just literally get on the floor and ask the Lord to help me. That's it. That's all I bring. I bring Brandon on the floor. And the Lord, he was never gone anyway because Jesus is my faithful high priest who stands there and intercedes for me all the time. So we have this better hope. What are you doing with it? I want you to do something with it. Like our church, if I want to do anything well, it's that I want to exercise the freedom that God has given us to love people really well. But it requires us actually moving forward in those things. So, like as I, as I say that, what does that look like in your daily life? Um, okay, so if you're married, how do you draw near to your spouse? I mean, you, you walk up to them, put your hand around, you talk to them, Spend time with them when you go on a date. I mean, I don't want to make this weird like Jesus is my romance or whatever, but this idea that if you're in a relationship with a person and you know how to draw near to that person, just do that with the Lord. Spend time with them. Open up the word. Read. Pray. Spend time with his body. That's all this mess of people in here. Just draw near to him. 
And the second thing is that we have this indestructible life. So the, Paul in Colossians says that we have this hope of glory. And that that hope of glory is Christ in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we just, we read a verse, Galatians 2.20, we sang a song about the fact that Jesus' very life is in you and me. So it's this life, the, the quality of Jesus' life. If you remember when we went back through the mind bender of John chapter 5, Jesus says, which is not even how many years ago, and Jesus says amazing things in that verse. But one of the things he says in 526 is he says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has given the Son to have life in himself. That Jesus is the source of his own intrinsic life. And I might be able to say a lot of weird things to somebody, but I'm not going to walk up to somebody and say, I am the source and the maintainer. I began my own life, and I'm the one who will maintain my own life for all eternity. Like if someone says that to me, I would want to hit him with a two-by-four just to put it to the test. Like, all right, here you go. If you're the source of your intrinsic life, wham, get up, you know, which is kind of what they did to Jesus. So I don't want to be like those people. But the idea that Jesus claims impossible things that only a weirdo would claim, unless it's true, that Jesus is the author of and the source of life and that by the very quality of the character of his life, it is indestructible and cannot be destroyed. So he has this life that cannot be broken apart, it cannot be diluted, it cannot be dissolved, and it cannot be annulled, and that is the life that is in you and me. So it's, when I say that I have eternal life, and I mean that I have it now, that's the kind of life that we have. So if I'm walking around as a believer, and I'm walking by faith, and I need patience to be kind to my child, the author of an indestructible life inhabits me. He dwells within me. He can help. If I need life to help me live, I have it. I don't have to go and find it. I have Jesus right now. And that life is indestructible. That means your circumstances cannot break it. That means whatever you're going through, whatever sin you have, cannot break Jesus' life. It can't. I don't care what sin you're involved in. Jesus' life is bigger. I don't care what difficulty you have gotten yourself into. Jesus' life is more. I don't care what problem you have. Jesus' life can overcome it. Because light shines through the darkness. And his life always conquers death. So when we bring death of whatever it is to Jesus, his life can bring the death to its knees always. So I don't know what in your life you're dealing with that you feel like is dead. Maybe it's a relationship or maybe it's your hope or whatever. I want to encourage you to draw near to the source of the indestructible life. Because it's, he's unbreakable. And his life is unbreakable. And that's why you can anchor your hope in him. But what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis is that in order to do that, I have to reject all the other stuff that I'm depending on. If I'm depending on my own righteousness, like, Lord, I, I, I'm basically a good enough person. I mean, really? No, you're not. Who, who's good enough? Like, good enough compared to who? Good enough according to what standard? Like, you've never sinned? You've never done anything wrong? Like, good luck. Okay, no, no rational person will say that. So don't hope on that. But maybe you're hoping on, okay, well, Lord, I've, I, you know, I, I, I generally do good stuff, though. Like I go to church and I'm doing these things and I say that I trust and I give. And that's not what gives you life. You get life by dying to yourself and walking to Jesus. You get life by laying aside, uh, walk, turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus and asking for him to save you. That's how you get life. And so you have to be willing to lay aside all the things that are dragging you to death in order to walk in the indestructible life that Christ is already living through you. 
And Hebrews will go ahead and talk about later on down the line about this idea of the sin which so easily entangles us. You have to be willing to walk out in the life of Jesus and leave all that stuff behind. So, next week, we're going to finish out chapter 7, and we're going to look at what kind of a high priest Jesus is and how he is able to save forever those who draw near to him. And it will be a super fun discussion, and we're going to end chapter 7 that way. And then roll into 8, 9, and 10, which is going to explain this new high priesthood and, and this new covenant and what they look like and how that meshes with and how the old covenant can explain the new one to us. It'll be in 8, 9, and 10, and then 11 is going to roll into this beautiful hall of fame, and then we get all this incredible application in the book of Hebrews. But congratulations, you have now waded through some of the, uh, the difficult parts of Hebrews in explaining this guy Melchizedek to us. So with that, let's pray and go about our day. Lord, we just love you and thank you for this indestructible life. And I'll just be honest, Lord, I don't, I can't always comprehend what all these things mean. And so I just, I just pray that you would help us to draw near to you. I pray that you would help us to, to trust in this life which cannot be broken, in this life that cannot be uh, taken away from us. This life that you gave and this life that we possess based on what you have done, not based on uh, our capacity to maintain it, not based on our capacity to follow the rules, but based on your character and based on who you are, that we have this indestructible and endless life that inhabits us. I pray that you would make at the forefront of our minds this week the fact that we are the bearers of life, that we are children of light, but that we are children who are alive in Christ Jesus, that we are children who have the indwelling Christ living through us, that we would therefore submit to you and draw near to you and allow you to live your life through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and sing this song together to um, unite our hearts.